Hello and welcome. This is uh, the second Night Owl in a row, so I'm going to have to ask all of you to lower your expectations. Um, if those of you who don't know, that uh, John and Jonah and I do this uh, a podcast uh, once a month whenever we can get ourselves together on ricochet.com. If you, if you like what you hear, go to Ricochet and you can subscribe to it. It'll come in your phone, which will show the wrong time. I don't... Whatever. And you, can, uh, and you can hear it, the subsequent ones. We are recording this, by the way, uh, so this will also be available uh, if you subscribe to it. You can hear it again. But we're um, exempt from the FCC, so I can work blue, right? Oh, you can work blue. Okay. Um, you can work blue, and you can work at any time you like. Um, but we should get some first things first. Things first. Because the, I don't feel like we've talked enough about the boat. Love exciting and new Come aboard We're expecting you You started the key a little too high Now you gotta go The love love boat You just cost $277,000 in royalties (laughs) In the song royalties. Um, we were talking about it earlier today, and I thought we, we should just start with it, even though we thought we wouldn't start with it. Um, because I'm here in this blue. We, 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 last night we were on a race platform, and then we had the brainstorm that that was too scary, and then we lowered it to the. Now we're actually on the ice. Well, we thought by lowering it, it would also help the audience lower its expectations. Yeah, lower expectations. <laughs> right, so if you throw something, you're going to hit us this time, for sure. Um, now, this is your first National Review cruise. It is my first National Review cruise. I've been on weekly standard cruises and Commentary Magazine, which I run. Uh, you, those did are a fun. cruise, and there is actually a cruiser from the Commentary Cruise who is here today. And uh, I think that um, he will probably uh, agree with me that that boat uh, could fit into this skating rink. <laughs> And in fact, we were in Alaska, so it, the entire boat was a skating rink. But, uh, and so I am, I think this is the most fantastic piece of human engineering and imaginative conception since the cathedral at Chartres. I'm just going to put that out right now. I'm sick of all your complaining. There are five swimming pools. There's a chariot race on deck 12. There's a holo deck on deck 72. Enough with the complaining. What are you complaining about? They're selling art out there for $7,000. There's a painting out there for seven. Don't buy it. But just marvel at the fact that you can walk past a casino into a skating rink, past an art gallery with untold human treasures. Yeah, but, but, but it, 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 first of all, in a hundred years, when we're all living in bearskins and caves, we're going to look back at this boat and we're, we're going to say, it should have been so friggin' obvious that we were doomed, right? I mean, this is... This is a, a, a greater sign of civilizational decay yeah. and self-indulgence than this boat I have never encountered. And, and it's funny, 
the other day I was thinking about it, you know, because there really is a sort of... Boring... I hate you, Burkeans. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's like there, there's like a whole sort of Hunger Games thing going on on this thing. Like, we're, the, we're the denizens of the capital city, and the, you know, and, uh, and half the people look like Donald Sutherland on this boat, and... Um, well, Donald, Donald Sutherland, who, who, who eats more carbs. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so the, when they were doing some announcement drill thing, not the lifeboat drill, but the, the next day, it just dawned on me that they could be saying in Tagalog or whatever language they were speaking, because all the speakers make it sound like it's Charlie Brown's teacher. Um, they could just be saying, in one hour, we kill them all. And no one would have any idea. Well, they were mentioning, they were, here, they were doing codes. We have a code, the, the drill was the code A73. What's that code, A73? What is that? It's like kill Whitey. <laughs> well, it's more like a passenger in a diabetic coma. No, that is time to spit in the garlic soup. <laughs> they will never know, but we will know. We will know, right. Uh, actually, I felt like getting on board... And I was looking at it, and someone was telling me at the same time I was getting on board, you know, this is the largest cruise ship in the world. And they built two of them, the Allure of the Seas and the Oasis of the Seas. The Oasis about, of the Seas is tiny. How about five more minutes on the name, maybe? You know, that, that meeting could have lasted. So, but they, they built them to the same specs. But it turns out that the Allure of the Seas ended up a few inches bigger, which means we either have too much stuff or the Oasis of the Seas is missing a piece. <laughs> Anyone know what this thing does? Yeah, I don't need it. I don't need it. What could go wrong? It's got a big thing on it. It's got an alarm and stuff. Just put it away. Uh, but as you're going up there, this is the largest So you're saying the that they assembled the boat the way I assemble an Ikea bookcase. Yeah. I spend four hours assembling an Ikea bookcase that it would take a normal person six minutes to assemble. And then at the end, there is a gigantic piece of steel just lying on the floor in front of me. And I realize I just, I can't read Swedish symbols. <laughs> That's my problem. I mean, I yeah. was not taught properly how to read the Swedish symbols designed by Ikea, and then I think basically it's anti-Semitism because... Well, no, but be fair. Wait, the man you, you, who wait, wait, started fair, Ikea... You think it's anti-Semitism because it's a thing who, and who on had, Earth. Who yes. had 11 minutes in before John called anti-Semitism? <laughs> you just... Okay, anti-Semitism, drink, drink, right? <laughs> drink, drink. You're on the list, you guys. <laughs> On the list. The man you who started see, Ikea... You guys see anti-Semitism everywhere. The no, man who started Ikea was the head of the Swedish Nazi party in the 1930s. I'm just saying. So when you see it's a thing called like Blorka or, you know, Kurka, it's actually some kind of... It was where they were going to put the concentration camps in Sweden... But they never got them there in time. And he ha already had the words invented, so he was going to repurpose them. And, and you're still buying his furniture? You know, I just love a bargain. <laughs> sure, sure, he was the head of the Nazi party, but you know, he sure but he that, made some mistakes. That's why pencils have erasers. But, yeah. yeah. Where am I going to put my CDs? <laughs> uh, can we just 
are you, just simmer down over here. Um, what I was going to say was coming up the gangway, um, thinking that it's the biggest cruise ship ever, I felt like one of those characters in the great film Poseidon Adventure, where, the, you know how in the beginning of all those disaster movies, they, you know, they're going to the big building or going to the big ship, someone's like, this is the largest thing in the world. Why, they're engineering, and there's always, the, and then they cut away, and the young engineer is talking probably to his father-in-law, who's the businessman who owns the company. And he says, well, boy, you, you, you bought all that titanium wire, right? And then the businessman says, are you kidding me? That would cut into our profits. We use the regular twine. Twine? All these people are going to die. No, they're not. It's about money. And then, you know, then, of course, uh, then the Shelley Winters goes through a tube and we all die. I, I don't like taking the Poseidon adventure lightly, not only because we're on a boat. And as you guys know, I am a subscriber to Twilight Zone morality, according to which if you say something is going to happen in minute one, it will happen by the end of the 30 minutes. But the Poseidon adventure was easily the most important movie that I saw as a kid. I saw it when I was 10 years old. And it has remained, it haunted me for years because of the question, the moral question that it raised was, if you were in the situation in the Poseidon Adventure and, and you're on a boat and it overturns, you are going to be one of two people, two, two types of people. You are going to be the person who, with grit and determination and calm and seriousness of purpose, starts climbing up the ship and getting yourself on the table up to the up to the chandelier, over here, through this, get, diving under the water. Big or, west. In other words, or big west. you're going to be the person who goes like this. Ah! And then, and you drown, and you're killed immediately. And so the John question Pedoritz, was... in other words, John Pedoritz. Well, that was the question, Rob. The question was, whom would you be? And in fact, I actually think that this is a very telling thing for a kid you know, a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be a resourceful person who is good in a crisis, or are you going to be the kind of person who cannot hold it together when things go south? And this, this genuinely haunted me and has been, I would say, of all the things in pop culture in the course of my life, this has been one of the really enduring, haunting experiences. And I bought it, actually. I bought the experience on the ship, the Poseidon Adventure experience. What, the experience, yeah. 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 The package, yeah. just good package. Yeah. So you didn't know that this night owl was mostly going to be about John's demons. Um, see, what, what I like is, is Poseidon Adventure 2. Um, it's one of the few sequels that is actually superior to the original. And in this Poseidon Adventure 2, Telly Savalas is a global, international terrorist, sort of like Carlos the Jackal, um, with a lollipop. With a lollipop, who decides to um, raid the overturned carcass of the Poseidon to steal the clandestine supply oil drums of plutonium that were secretly being transported on the ship. And Michael Caine plays the third type of person, not the person who runs away and not the person who diligently goes to his escape. Um, he may, he, he's the kind of person who tries to make a profit out of it. And he's there within the first 24 hours to scavenge through the Lido deck for whatever he can find. Because under the laws of salvage, you can pillage. All your staterooms belong to the Michael Caine character who shows up. But I just find it heartwarming. It's just it's a problem-solving kind of thing. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>
Well, but okay. Speaking of pillaging uh-huh. and, the, and, and the laws of the sea and, and cowardice, we should spend two minutes, because um, we did it already today, but two minutes talking a little bit about the midterms. Okay. All right. Uh, the midterms. Go. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm a little slow tonight. I'm, I got to get, you know, I should be more on my toes like James Lilacs at a urinal. Um, oh. Um, the midterms. So, uh, they could have been worse, right? Um, and, um... Now you've done it. Wow. <laughs> you are not getting your hands on a microphone, my friend. Uh, excuse me. The, the Boy Scout troop is meeting over there. Oh. <laughs> that should reach. For our, for our radio audience, there was just a sight gag. Yeah. Just yeah. Sight. It's sort of like in radio when... Edgar Bergen had Charlie McCarthy, the dummy, Edgar Bergen, the ventriloquist, and he was, had a dummy, and he did a ventriloquist act on the radio. <laughs> what the hell was up with that? It totally worked. It totally worked. It worked. The guy was a big star. But I bet you he was moving his mouth because he was in a radio studio. Yeah. Well, that's like there's a, there's a great sign you can find on the Internet of a McDonald's drive through that has a sign that says, at the drive-thru, that says, Braille menus are available upon request. <laughs> you know, like, for the occasional blind driver who shows up at, at the drive-thru. No dogs allowed except seeing-eye dogs. <laughs> Who's supposed to read that? The truth is that Charlie McCarthy actually went in the, on the radio. It was Edgar Bergen and an actual actor, a young actor named Charlie who played the part. And then when they invented television, Edgar Bergen said, hey, Charlie, let's go for a ride. And um, <laughs> that's how that happened. That's how it became the ventriloquist act. Well, that's like, that's like that old joke about why did they have Ted Kennedy drive the hearse at, at Rose's funeral? Why? I don't know. Why did they have Ted Kennedy drive the hearse at Rose Kennedy's Because funeral? she wanted a burial at sea. <laughs> if I can't tell that joke on a National Review cruise, where can you tell it? Wait a minute, I'm looking around and see if Ted Kennedy's going to come down now. No. Um, so I guess we talked about the midterms. Yeah, what, what, uh, can, we, can I ask you, can we do an experiment? Can we, that, that now, I just want to repeat, because it's very important, we've heard it over and over again, but just to have it sink in, Republicans now control 823 state legislatures. 823 out of 99. I don't know how that happened. But I really think that it's important that we note this because it's a real sea change in the way America is now going to be governed. Simmer down. Um, we're just going to... Uh, please talk please, to Joe. talk over here. Uh, hey, he, bring, he brings gravity to the Can we talk for stage. two minutes about... Because I, as you know, I'm, I wish everyone well. I want everyone to succeed. 
I, I think everyone deserved a trophy on Tuesday night. I don't know why we have be winners and losers. And I now feel sorry for the sort of sad, kind of weird, skinny figure in the White House who seems to be living in a fantasy land. Valerie Jarrett? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so uh, for those of you who don't know, I write this very strange newsletter thing called The Goldberg File. Um, um, Wait, that's not a lot of people. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Uh, let the record show that when you mentioned Ricochet, that there was crickets. Um, well, we're a retiring group. <laughs> um, anyway, so I have this theory that uh, I guess Rob has been trying diligently to me to bring up, that Barack Obama is Johnny Bravo. Now, Johnny Bravo, Johnny for those Bravo. of you who aren't steeped in, in the highest aspirations of American literature that may not know, Johnny Bravo was a fake rock star from the Brady Bunch. Greg Brady was asked, was pulled out of his family band and asked to be... Uh, By Edgar Bergen. <laughs> to be a, uh, a rock star named Johnny Bravo. And, and Greg Brady thought, oh, it's because I'm so talented and they love my sound and they love my music and all of that. And lo and behold, it turned out that they wanted him to be Johnny Bravo because he fit the suit. Um, and everything else was fake. And I have a theory that Barack Obama became president because he fit the suit, metaphorically speaking. He was exactly what the country needed. He was anti-Bush. He was African-American. He sounded smarter than he is. All of these things. He checked all of these boxes. And um, he fit the suit that the political consultants wanted. The only person who wasn't in on this was Barack Obama. <laughs> and so Barack Obama has this famous line... Um, which we can edit out, and I'm, I apologize for the minors, but you know, he has this famous line where he says, you know, I actually believe my own bullshit. Um, and, um, and I think that says so much about the guy. He is in a, such an unbelievable denial right now where he actually thinks, you know, when, he, when you say, I listened to the, the two-thirds of Americans who didn't vote. I mean, they all said, you're awesome. Right, I mean... <laughs> Um, you know, it, it is one of the most unbelievably unfalsifiable weird statements, right? It's like, I can say, you know, this microphone is keeping all of the unicorns away. You, know, you can't prove me wrong, right? But I mean, it's... it's um, and I, I think that Obama is in a very, very almost certifiably pathologically weird place right now. And maybe he's always been there, but it, does, it simply does not occur to him that he's the problem. And he's like, you know, Greg Brady had more presence of mind and integrity than Obama because he turned it down. He realized it was sort of all a BS deal. But Obama, he actually believes his own BS. And he, you know, there's this line in this new piece about Valerie Jarrett where she said on the 2012 campaign, you know, Mr. President, I am truly bewildered why you're not getting 85% of the vote. And this is Obama's closest advisor. This is the one woman in the White House that Obama actually listens to. And if the one person in the White House he actually listens to can't figure out why he's not getting 85% of the vote, then, you know, they need to be institutionalized. It's a very strange place that we're in. Every presidency around its sixth or seventh year since I began paying attention in the Reagan administration is accused of developing a bubble around it. 
or, you know, it's third or fourth year. It's president lives and, you know, hosted by the Secret Service. He has no touch with the American people. He's surrounded by AIDS. He's got people who only tell him good things. And that there is this bubble. And he has to figure out a way to get out of the bubble so he can have a renewed touch with the people who elected him and whom he had a supernatural ability to bring to his side as the only person in the country who was able to get... The, you know, one of the 44 people who was able to get Americans to make him, him president. And they were all accused of being in a bubble. And um, I wrote a book about the first Bush in which I tried to describe the Bush bubble. But there's never been a bubble like the Obama bubble because Obama has a method according to which he can tune out the bad news that no one has ever had before. And that is, when you read about what he reads, it tells you everything you need to know. First of all, Republicans, of course, can't turn to the New York Times editorial page and read it and think it describes reality. A Republican president can't do that because otherwise he will you know, begin to see double and triple because they will be describing something he, that does not conform with his sense of how the world works. But Obama reads liberal blogs. Obama reads Andrew Sullivan every day. Now, if you live in a world in which your media consumption is, is coalesces around servile, false efforts to speak pretty nothings into your ear by a blogger and some journalists who know that you're reading them, so therefore, they are court courtiers no different from Valerie Jarrett or somebody like that. There is an absolute reason why he became Johnny Bravo, because it's not just he who believes he's Johnny Bravo. Andrew Sullivan believes he's Johnny Bravo. MSNBC believes he's Johnny Bravo. You know, I don't know, the bunch of whoever else he reads that we haven't even heard of. And that was not available to presidents before. Yeah, Reagan didn't think he was Johnny Bravo. No, Reagan... Got, Who's Johnny got Bravo again? <laughs> but also, look, I mean, part of the problem is, is, is Obama is, a, is flatly a terrible politician. His only real gift in politics is talking about himself. You know, I mean, you know, you know enough about me. What do you think of me? I mean, that is where he comes from. <laughs> and... Um, and he has not once in six years in office ever persuaded the American people on an issue at all. He's only... Uh, Except it, two. Not, I'm Except sorry? two issues. Three issues. Two issues, really. Getting himself elected. Twice, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's Pretty good, thing. though. No, that's yeah, yeah, no, but look, but he the man's credit. He can't sell. He, 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 could, he, tried to, he stumped for Democrats in 2009. He stumped for Democrats in 2010. He stumped for Democrats in 2014. And it didn't work. He gave 54 speeches on Obamacare in a year. And he never moved the needle. He never got the thing to be popular. The guy can't sell anything but himself. Right. Now, let's look back at the you know, worst president in history, monster, of, you know, terminal monster, so inarticulate and stupid, George W. Bush. So George W. Bush, every time George W. Bush gave a major speech, and he didn't give as many as Obama did, but if he actually had to give a major speech on... Iraq, on the surge, on going to the UN, on 
no child left behind. If he gave these speeches, and they were national speeches, there was an observable bump in public opinion almost every time after he gave a speech, in part because he was measured. He did not go to the well constantly. He did not attempt to play this weird you know, game of making pretty talk about you know, the bills that he liked. Obama, you know, our, the, the, the greatest communicator of our age, is a worse communicator than the person, I, I mean, I'm saying this as a, as a matter of science, a worse communicator than the person for whom he has such contempt as his predecessor. Because his predecessor was talking about real things and making real arguments. And Obama doesn't make real arguments. Obama establishes the straw man that he destroys, and then he stands there as the lone representative of reasonable opinion. Well, it's, it's funny. You know, uh, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I think you're actually right on the analysis about, like, particularly, you know, Bush's set speeches, the ones where they were serious, written-out speeches. They were actually pretty masterful, good speeches. Um, but the problem with Bush when he spoke extemporaneously was, like, you know that feeling when you're walking down a flight of stairs in the dark, yeah. And you miss a step, and you're like, holy crap, where am I going to land? That's what his sentences were like when he talked off the cuff. You, didn't, you got so caught up in like, this feeling of panic about can he find the right word to finish this sentence that you kind of stopped listening, and then he stuck the landing. Um, but if you actually read the transcripts of the way Bush talked in those debates versus John Kerry, John Kerry's answers all read like they were badly translated from the German. You know, the, the nouns and the verbs are all over the place. They're wandering off like, a, like an Alzheimer's patient in the snow. I mean, they make no sense whatsoever. And George Bush's sentences worked perfectly, but to your ear, they sounded like he didn't know the right word and was searching for it. Obama's speeches, at least in the beginning, sounded like they were really intelligent and impressive. And you actually had to realize that it was sort of the equivalent of auto-tuning music. It was... There was actually no substance. It wasn't, a, it wasn't actually a good speech. It sounded like a good speech. Right. I, I stopped listening when you said the phrase, um, a visible bump. Um, so I, I'm a little bit behind. But do you think... <laughs> it's like just my head is like, that's weird. Okay. Um, I didn't realize we were entering that phase of the evening. Yeah, we, okay, we yeah, waited that a while ago. Uh, for the past, I don't know, since Reagan... The sainted Reagan, Republicans have kind of had kind of a high wire act. Every time we go, you know, watch a debate, or we talk to our friends who aren't Republicans or they aren't conservatives, they aren't going to vote the way we wanted to vote. And mostly, we start by saying, "No, don't what don't hear what he meant. No, stop what he meant." And um, that doesn't look like it's going to happen in the next cycle. You know, not whatever this is, not whatever it is. Do you think it's going to happen to their candidate? who, let's be honest, is probably Hillary Clinton? Uh, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton has a, has a glass jaw. Uh, I think if you go back and think about Hillary Clinton as a public figure, she became a famous person in America because she said something stupid. That was, she said this thing about how, I'm not just standing by my man like Tamu Annette baking cookies in the kitchen. And then she had to spend two weeks apologizing for it, baking cookies in a kitchen. 
and then explaining why it was that she spoke in a southern accent that she doesn't speak in. And then, of course, it turned out she was Tammy Wynette, and that Bill Clinton was George Jones. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. It's a whole other story. Just this year, she has made two unforced, bizarre errors. She said this thing about being dead broke, leading to, you know, a thousand comedy routines, including a column I wrote entirely in the voice of Hillary Clinton as though she were an Appalachian coal miner's wife. Um, and then she said this thing the other week, trying to sound like Elizabeth Warren, about don't tell me businesses don't create jobs. Because, of course, No, no, don't the tell job, me businesses do create jobs. You don't tell me businesses create jobs, because, of course, the jobs fairy creates jobs. <laughs> the, they come out, and they, they rain like manna. They drop it like, like the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. And then she had to correct that. And this is her in a cakewalk. No one's, no one's asking her a hard question. No one, no one, nobody's giving her a hard time. She's not being grilled. She's, you know, she was on a sort of a celebratory tour of her book. She blew the release of her book. What happens when she comes under pressure? Remember, she was pretty easily... Be- okay, it was a long road, but I mean, once Obama beat her, he, you know, basically she was, she was done when Iowa was over with, and then she staged a comeback in New Hampshire, but basically there After was no crying. mathematical way... It was also after crying. Remember, it was the, the, cry, yeah. the, the crying on demand thing. Yeah, and that, but I mean, she had no mathematical way, apparently, of winning the election unless something terrible came out about him. And, you know, that was because she, running this brilliant campaign with so-and-so, didn't understand the rules of the Democratic Party nominating uh, system. All right, so should everybody be celebrating now? No, she I mean, she's a... For- Look, she's going to have a billion dollars, and she's a formidable... Can- Democrats have a very good vote-getting machine, and... The media will be behind her and all of that. I'm just saying, if you look at the totality of her public career, which really began in, in 1992, her greatest political success came when she spent two years running for Senate in New York and said nothing. She went on a two-year listening tour, which meant that she sat there and other people talked, and she said nothing. And then in one debate... In September, her rival walked over to her podium. Oh, my God, he walked over to her podium. He invaded her space with a document. This is terrible. He was mansplaining before there was mansplaining. So where is the evidence that she is a formidable person other than that she is incredibly famous? And she is. She's one of the five most famous people in the world, according to certain polls. And she'll have more money than God. And she has this popular husband. Otherwise, she is going to have eight years of Obama's baggage. Whatever condition the economy is in, she is going to have to take some ownership of the foreign policy position of the United States, which unless miraculous things happen between now and when the election season begins, is not going to be a good picture. She has headwinds. She is is not going to... She is not somehow going to transcend right. the fact of having to run for president under hard conditions while she is herself not that impressive a candidate. Yeah, there were, there were uh, two points. One, um, she did say one thing, because I wrote about it all the time, because she said it all the time on the stump when she was running for the Senate. She said, the, she was always trying to de- 
disarm the carpetbagger issue. You know, and I actually went and looked in her book, It Takes a Village. I'm one of the five conservatives in captivity who's actually read that book. And um, it mentions, it has something like 60 place names in the index, and not one of them is New York. Um, and, but anyway, she, she would go around upstate New York saying, the issue here um, is who, which candidate is more concerned about the issues that concern you? And I always hated this idea that somehow concern, which, you know, the Democrats have been working on for years and years and years, but that can somehow concern for the issue trumps knowledge, expertise, facts, you know. It's sort of like saying, would you rather have your appendix taken out by a surgeon who's concerned about his tea time or have it taken out by a plumber who has no idea what he's doing, but he's really concerned about doing it right? And, um, but she, that, that all worked for it. But the, uh, on the larger point on, on, on Hillary, I think it's exactly right. She is, her idea of spontaneity is leaping from her prepared text to her prepared note cards. And um, she's simply not a compelling, charismatic personality. She's the woman who comes up to you and says, there's no eating in the library. <laughs> and... The, the idea that that won't wear on people after a year of campaigning, I just find un, just unpersuasive. I think I had a music teacher once. I think it was Hillary Clinton, actually, now that I think about it. Who, um, to get, you know, hip with the kids, she said, you know, this, this semester we're going to do some, some Beatles songs. And I kind of feel like there's a certain... We used to call it um, a Bob Hope in a hippie wig which is somebody who's really not of a certain generation trying desperately to appeal to it. And you've got to get that sense from her right now that you're going to see this for the next six months because she's old. She's an older woman. I mean, no, 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 nothing wrong with that. <laughs> know your audience, Rob. Yeah, but, know your audience. But let's be honest. I mean, let's just, you know, we're conservatives. We can be honest, right? Not a liability necessarily, but... I think she's a spring chicken, everybody. I, I think that if you, again, think about the headwinds, and look, I'm somebody who wrote the worst book ever published on Hillary Clinton. Oh, on Hillary uh, Clinton? Yeah, which was called uh, Can She Be Stopped, uh, which presumed that, uh, whose subtitle was Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States, unless dot, 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 and my solution was Republicans needed to nominate Rudy Giuliani against her. That book is available on Amazon for a penny. See, I, I thought... If and you, if I were you, I wouldn't pay it. I, I, but thank you. But I got a big advance for it, so I'm, I'm all right, Jack. But you guys that, don't read that book. So I'm saying I'm somebody who was in a... I chronically overestimated Hillary. So I don't want to chronically underestimate her now. And I don't want to be a sort of happy talker because, look, it's, it's hard. Uh, I, Democrats know uh, amazing things about how to rally their base and how to rally people who aren't in their base but who are persuadably their voters. But if you consider who it was that formed the extraordinary new coalition that got Obama elected and reelected. It was a combination of unbelievable African-American turnout, higher than white turnout, which 
you know, by a factor of five or something had never happened before. And this insane youth vote, two to one in 2008 and three to two in 2012. And while I have no doubt that, Hillary, that African Americans will go 95% for the Democrats as they did this time, uh, as they did for Obama, um, will they turn out in greater numbers than whites for Hillary Clinton? I see no reason why that would necessarily be the case. And we have already seen, as Mona Charon talked about on a panel and as I wrote about uh, in a piece that I heartily commend to you that is on the Commentary Magazine website right now, by me, that the youth turnout uh, in 2012, uh, 2014, was 53-43. That's 18 to 29s, went 53-43 for Obama, for Democrats, after being 67-21 for Obama in 2008. What that means is, okay, granted, the turnout was very, very low. It was 13% were made up of that vote as opposed to 20% in 8 and 12. But... It's still a gigantic focus group uh, poll of the attitudes, the biggest one that we have, national voting pattern of attitudes of people 18 to 29. And it appears, while they are far more Democratic than they are Republican, this, they are not 2 to 1 Democrat. They are 50 to 40. They are 10 points more, not 25 or 27 points more. Do you buy that this could PS? be all the difference. Do you buy this? Yeah, all, all I wanted to say was I thought if you, instead of having Rudy Giuliani be the nominee, if you just had Dorothy throw a bucket of water on her, um, <laughs> it would have solved everything. Um, but now that seems like bad timing on my part. Um, no, uh, bad timing. His books for, uh, sold for a penny now. For a penny. <laughs> So is she the I really, one I have like 12 in the basement of my apartment building. Just come by. I'll just yeah. give them is all she, to you. Is she really, the walking dead? No, but I, I, on the substance, I agree entirely with John. I think that, that she is far more vulnerable. I think she's the biggest shoe-in for a nomination in American history, uh, modern American history, um, of a non-incumbent president. Right, right. Uh, but the idea that... Some, where I thought you were going to go, John, was on the... Um, if... if if the turnout models that the Democratic presidential candidate needs rely on incredibly boffo turnout by um, young people and African Americans, that may be really problematic if she has to spend the next two years distancing herself from Barack Obama. And they're going to feel like, you know, that the base of the party is going to say, why were you, you know, uh, throwing Obama under the bus? And that, I think... Her strategy is to essentially throw Obama under the bus for the next two also, years. So we've seen her. Like I feel like these tired old faces. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm. You know what I mean? Have I seen these tired old faces? We've seen these tired faces, and uh, it's going to be hard to get people to you know to keep buying the. Uh, the, the regular flavor when extra crispy seems to be on the other side. Right. And the only look the advantage that she has is that. Uh, nothing new, as far as we know, can come out about her. She is the most vetted person in history. So if you don't like her, you don't like her. If you like her, you probably like her. That ship has sailed. I mean, unless you're eight, 17 or 18 and you don't know her and it's going to be your first vote. So, and the Republican, whoever it's going to be, unless it's, you know, unless it's Mitt Romney, who, you know, had a billion dollars already thrown at him, and it probably won't be Mitt Romney, 
will go through one of these processes of complete character assassination and destruction. And the question is, you know, will that suffice to make him or her sufficiently unattractive to, you know, even the playing field with right. Hillary? Well, it, it's funny you bring up Mitt Romney, right? Because I, I tried to write this column. My column will be up on NRO tomorrow, uh, as John would say, by me. Um, and it's uh, this actually was by me. So. <laughs> um, he was he was he had taking a nap in his room. He had a deadline. It's okay. And um, uh, and I, it's always dangerous to try and write a column just so you can get in a single line, and because it takes you in bad places. So I didn't do this, but I spent a good hour trying to figure out how I could work in Mitt Romney in a pantsuit, because. <laughs> In a lot of ways, yeah. that's who Hillary Clinton is. Is uh, oh come on, that's an NR cover. Where is Roman Kent? Like that is you have now. You that's a total <laughs> NR cover, right? Yeah, like right there. Now you got to write three thousand words yeah, no, instead of seven hundred. Yeah, sounds like something from you your are dream, screwed, buddy. Sounds like something yeah. from your dream journal. See, I, I, I was about to say, gosh, I hope Rich Lowry's here, but we now know he doesn't show up for much at all. So, um. um uh, but, you know, so it, some of you probably remember me ranting about this in the past about Mitt Romney. It's an old line of mine. But, you know, Mitt Romney had what I call an authentic inauthenticity problem. He seemed fake, but that was actually really him. <laughs> right? Um, the, way I, the, 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 the analogy I always use, and again, apologies to people who heard me say it before, is uh, it's like when you see an alligator for the first time. Right? Like a friend points out an alligator to you and says, hey, look, it's an alligator. And you're like, dude, no way, that's not an alligator. And then you lean in close and the alligator moves. (laughs) Holy crap, it's an alligator. Turns out alligators just look fake. Right? (laughs) Mitt Romney looks like the picture that comes with the frame. (laughs) And that was a big part of his problem. He just couldn't connect with ordinary people. I remember I, I wrote in 2004 about John Edwards that he would be doing so much better if he'd only been scalded in the face with acid. Um, Because he just looked too perfect. And Hillary Clinton, I will say this with all the generosity of understatement, does not look too perfect. But she does have this authenticity problem where no one, whether you're a friend or a foe, no one hears Hillary Clinton say anything without asking immediately, why is she saying that, right? No one ever says, oh, that she must right, really here, believe that. Here's my theory. Here's my theory. My theory is the problem is that they, the Clintons, force us as sort of a general rule to accept their weird story about their loving relationship. Like, we have to believe that they, you know, get up and have, like, you know, sit there in the morning with their cup of coffee and watch the news together. And they have little jokes together. And they, they like, you know, well, who's going to go to Costco today? I'll go to Costco today, honey, because I'm gonna, it's on the way to the thing. Okay, well, then make sure we get the stuff that I like because you know I love that minestrone. Okay, you know. And then they go off and they have their busy lives. They come back and they kind of snuggle and they put on their little the, – what, what are those little blankety things? Snuggies. Snuggies. And they get the Snuggies on, and they watch TCM, and they fall asleep. Yeah. And we have to believe that's what's happening, right? 
even though these are two strangers. They do not know each other, these two people. There was a story in the New York Times that they, they discovered, husband and wife, that they were in Rio de Janeiro at the same time. She was there as Secretary of the State. He was there in the Clinton initiatives. And they were like, they're trying to get together, but the New York Times reporters credulously said, well, of course they couldn't, because their entourages simply couldn't make it happen. You know who they're like? You know who they're like? That, that marriage is, they are like Maurice and Andorra from Bewitched. No, no. Maurice and Andorra from Bewitched, because if you think about it, they weren't yeah, divorced. They weren't divorced. They seemed to kind of vaguely loathe each other. They weren't on many episodes together. He would pop in, she would pop out. They would fling their arms together, and then he would go, he was sort of a colorful, wild crazy, colorful Englishman with women at big drink and yeah. she was this kind of harried, mean, you know, horrible mother-in-law. And, and, and there they were and apparently they'd been married for 2,000 years right. and they had enough of each other. And it that is the like Clintons. Yeah, yeah. Right. That is the Clintons, only they're just not as interesting. And of course, I love, I love, and of course, Chelsea is no Elizabeth Montgomery. Well, we don't know that. But yet. The, the, the truth, though, is that their marriage actually is interesting, right? It's just that we yeah. never get to hear what the truth of it is. I mean, for all we know, Bill Clinton has got some intern dressed up like Princess Leah with a choke chain, you know, in his basement. But we just never get to hear about it, you know. Or maybe not. I'm processing this image. <laughs> I, it's not like I put any thought into this. I. Have, <laughs> I, I need a minute for those of us on the radio what was the phrase for the podcast uh, Rob just did another yeah, sight gag moved over. Um, can we can we can we just for 10 seconds not talk about the Clintons can no. we you about, brought her no. up can we, we can't can we have to talk about the Clintons can we can that we talk, is their gift to us my, my, here's here, I was trying to do a segue it didn't work oh I'm uh, sorry the Clinton... The Clinton. Oh, Segway. Go ahead. What the hell with it? Zombies. By the way, they have Segway rides on Deck 74. <laughs> so stop complaining about the boat. On, on Friday, you actually get to hunt a real human being. It is awesome. It's expensive. I mean, it's really expensive. Um, because no, all not if lo- you get the human being package. It's not expensive. Yeah. But like you get a crossbow, and it's it's it's, it's the ultimate sport. It really, it's fantastic. But the irony is, it's probably the guy who's going to bring you your breakfast tomorrow, and then it's going to be late because you shot him. <laughs> Who are you going to blame now? Um, uh, okay. Speaking of that, we were talking today about zombies. I said I thought you didn't want to talk about the Clintons anymore. <laughs> because. Zombies are a big deal now. And I have a theory about zombies, and you had one, which I didn't, I don't want to hear again. Um, zombies are anti Semitic. <laughs> I'm like, I drink, I'm, but I'm out, you know. Yeah, that's all. Uh, hint. I'm, I'm, in like touch, the, I'm in touch with the elders. So <laughs> you keep it. I've got your bank account number. <laughs> And I control the media, so I'd be very careful if I were you. Fair enough. Fair this enough. is like an Episcopalian sandwich here between these two. Lots of mayo. Yeah. 
just to just to get through it. Trim you, crusts. You guys aren't aren't going to get emotional or anything, right? Um, how come zombies are so big? I thought you said you had a theory about it. <laughs> Your theory first. Um, I, I I think we are in a period of from nine eleven through. The financial crisis, we are in a moment of sort of existential angst. We realize how fragile our comfort and our, our, our situations are. And um, this, because it's not just zombies, right? It's this whole apocalyptic culture. There's all of this, you know, I mean, every third show, every third reality show is about how to survive with a bowie knife and um, puddle water, right? And... What's that um, show, Naked and Afraid? Naked, I love Naked and Afraid. We've talked about this on, yeah. on the Glob Culture podcast. It is a fantastic Bill show. Bill Clinton is going to be on that next week <laughs> with Princess Leah. So <laughs> He's naked. Yeah. She's, She's afraid. afraid. <laughs> Together, they are naked and afraid. Hey, Rob, what's your theory about zombies? Well, yours is incorrect. So, John, quickly, your theory on zombies. They're anti-Semitic. <laughs> My quick theory about zombies is that zombies, as, as is the case with almost everything after 9-11, are some uh, stand-in, cultural stand-in for Al-Qaeda, and the general, the general uh, sense of uh, worldwide threat to the homeland that Hollywood cannot actually tell a realistic story about, so it converts them into zombies, Cylons... All sorts of other things. Also incorrect. Here's why. Because it's going to happen. <laughs> Maybe not the crawling out of the grave and eating brains and stuff, but like we, we are, you know, I think we're living in a world which is... You know, look, here's exhibit A. Uh, my first NR cruise was 2008. My first cruise in life was 2008. Um, and I was sold. Um, and you would walk into the dining room and sit down and have your dinner. And by 2010, there was a guy trying to squirt Purell on you. And then places where you'd get Purell squirted on you. And someone standing there, some smiling person standing there at the Purell dispensary, like looking at you and saying, uh, Hi, welcome for dinner. But, you know. And uh, we were treated as like infants to this video the, on, on Sunday, like with that little cartoons, like, wash your hands. I loved that video. I thought that was awesome. That song was stuck uh, in my head for hours. And you know, it's infantilizing, and I kind of felt like that's the friendly face of North Korea, you know? Like, this was like, basically, this would be, this is a perfect communist environment where, like, everything's paid for. Don't worry about it. If you want more, you'll have to pay extra. But, um, and I feel like that's, we now know how close we all are to some weird farm, pig farm in China or chicken coop in Africa. We're about 12, 15, 24 hours away uh, with, with incredible circles of, of, um, of infection all along the way. Um, you guys wait right here. I'm going <laughs> to... No, just I'll tell Poseidon you. an Adventure Time. I'll tell you yeah, there's if you... A, there's a strange noise from the ceiling. Listen, you know that we're in trouble, and here's your... We're in trouble when John Podoris does this. Ah! Um, 
And that's why... By the way, the Jews on the Poseidon Adventure swam underwater 5,000 feet obese. (laughs) Obese, Rob. Everyone who went like this was a Gentile. That's because the the Jews control Hollywood. (laughs) Okay, so you love Poseidon Adventure. Give me your five... If you... And only five desert island movies. Okay, my five desert island Meaning movies. Meaning the movies, if you're on a desert island, you'll watch over and over again. Godfather, Singing in the Rain, All About Eve, The Philadelphia Story, and Casablanca. What are yours, Rob? Because I'm, I'm trying to figure it out right now. Can you with the funny ones? Um, okay, I'll let you come up with the funny ones. Okay. Yours is going to be really, really funny. Minor series. Uh, Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah, like one half a clap. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Best Years of Our Lives. Citizen Kane. High Noon. I want to say Earthquake. <laughs> Towering Inferno? No, Earthquake was better. It had Charlton Heston in it and Ava Gardner, Lauren Green, Javier Bujold. Sense Around? George Kennedy. You know the last line of Earthquake was? No. George Kennedy as, as a, um, moral, a moral movie, right? Uh, uh, Charlton Heston had a girlfriend, Javier Bujold. He really loved her. She was nice. Uh, his horrible wife, Ava Gardner, was really rude to him and horrible. But at the end, when they're in the sewers of L.A., which didn't exist, but they're in the sewers, and the thing is filled with water, he, and, and, and he has a chance to... Uh, to Ava Gardner is going to be washed away, and he has a chance to let her get washed away, and then he can be with Jean-Vier Bujold, but instead he goes with Ava Gardner, and they get washed away. And then George Kennedy pulls uh, um, Jean-Vier Bujold up, and he looks at the surveying Los Angeles uh, destruction, and he says the worst... One of the worst lines ever in movies is, this used to be a hell of a town. It's a big crane shot. So, yeah, so that's my fifth. It's, it's Earthquake. Yours, now. Ah, crap. I, I hate these things. Um, I, I, I have to put Godfather on, just because, even though John did. Um, let's see. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah. Um, a Face in the Crowd. Um, Digstown. <laughs> Digstown. Excellent choice. <laughs> What? What, what do you like? Excellent choice. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. It's a great movie. And The Sting. That's four. And The Sting. Isn't that? Okay. Uh, That's two heist movies on a desert the, island. Like, the, what skill are you going to learn? You're going to knock over a coconut tree? Okay. So, Dicks down on The Sting? How about The Godfather on Blu ray and on DVD? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Uh, well, okay, all right, but, one more. One more? No, uh, he's got, okay. Pass the glory. Oh, that's too depressing. But you want to watch that on a desert island? I don't know. I I, I hate coming up with these kinds of. But you you should you should have said Groundhog Day. That's the movie with which you are most closely associated. Get rid of Pass the Glory. Groundhog Day. I love Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. So and then Last American Virgin. Just kidding. Oh yeah, that's not a bad movie actually. But it has the most depressing ending in all. Cinema. Really? Yes. Pretty, yeah, well, Last well, American Virgin is a early uh, 1980s uh, teen exploitation movie 
made by the astounding firm of, of Golan Globus, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus' cousin, uh, who made all kinds of insanely bad uh, movies. Lots of Chuck Norris movies. Chuck Norris movies, and he uh, and, and, and paid for an, a, a movie that Norman Mailer wrote and directed based on his book, Tough Guys Don't Dance, which features the single worst scene in a movie in Hollywood history, in which Ryan O'Neill is shot on a dune on Martha's Vineyard just saying, oh no, oh man, oh God, oh man, go to YouTube when you go to your room and just type in Ryan O'Neill, tough guys don't dance, you will not believe your eyes. Anyway, See, go on, go I, 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 thought, I thought you'd the quotation marks didn't close until after you said go to YouTube. And I was like, oh, that's really oh, interesting. Wow, that's pretty yeah. good. He's Norman dying on the smart. beach, and he's like, oh, man, oh, God, go to YouTube. Go to YouTube, go type to YouTube. in my name. Yeah, no, that would have been, a, that would have been already a good, a good movie. So but... of, of, of all the movies you just mentioned, uh-huh. Last American Virgin. Well, which is the one you'd say to people, okay, I, you probably haven't seen this one, go see it in a while. Which is the one I would recommend to people that they haven't seen or whatever? Yeah, but you... Face of the Crowd. Face of the Crowd. Face of the Crowd I think is, is the best, best right. movie about... Uh, populism and demagoguery ever made in politics. Face in the Crowd is a movie uh, written what, by the translator Bud... here? What? <laughs> no, I'm Lyle. Face in the Crowd is I'm a Lyle. movie about I'm Lyle. Face Griffith. in the Crowd was made in 1957 by Elia Kazan, written by Bud Schulberg and starring Andy Griffith in his first film with Patricia Neal, whom you may know was actually the girlfriend of Gary Cooper, in fact, and Walter Matthau, who later would win an Oscar for The Fortune Cookie, directed by Billy Wilder. <laughs> John has been... Oh, John, I forgot. Rain Man is a good movie. Rain Man is a good movie. John, John's dream job is to be the guy who does the voiceover as the winner of the Academy Award walks to the stage. This is his third Academy Award. He was twice nominated before. That's what John wants to do with his life. Uh, I would say, here's my movie, is if you haven't seen uh, Best Years of the, Our Lives, uh, directed by William Wyler... Great picture, uh, shot in 1946, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, and Homer, the guy, the real guy. Harold Russell. Yeah, was he the real dude? His name was Harold Russell. He, he was a, a guy with arms for hands. Um, and he I guess, got his arms burned off in a, in a, in a, dest- in a destroyer at the Pacific no, in Theater. A training, in a training in a, accident. In a tra- what the? God damn it. <laughs> he got his arms shot off. That's all you need to know. It's a great, if you haven't seen it, it's a really great picture. It's a great post-war picture. And I think what happens is people think that uh, none, of this, none of this ever happened before. So after, after the Vietnam War, there's those Vietnam War movies, and now there's sort of like this sort of post-Middle uh, Eastern War, Iraq War uh, uh, movies and theories about how uh, war is t- difficult and there's a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome. And we kind of think that we invented it, right? Because it happened now, happened to me, so it must be new. But if you look at those old movies, 1946, that, 1940s, that is a better and more interesting and more insightful and more human and more accurate post-war movie and completely unvarnished than anything any of the liberals in Hollywood did in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. I just like the phrase you used, which really sort of tells you a lot about the era that we're in in terms of defining things down. Rob, Rob Long declared, war is difficult. Not war is hell. War is difficult. But it is. War is a concern. <laughs> but it is. Best Years of Our Lives is an achingly beautiful movie. I mean, there are scenes in that movie, as Rob alludes to. I mean, this notion that somehow we only discovered post traumatic stress disorder after Vietnam. I mean, there's a scene where uh, Dana Andrews, who was a. Uh, who was a. Fighter uh, pilot. Fighter pilot, and, and comes back home. See, I can interrupt with details, a, too, you know. 
And he's a soda jerk. He's a soda jerk. He's a soda jerk who can barely get his job back. Can't even get his job back. <laughs> anyway, he walks through this uh, airfield of, with um, decommissioned planes. And he sees a plane that looks like the plane that he was in. And you just see him and you hear the sound of... He, he's remembering the sounds of what it was like in the cockpit... And he trembles and shudders. And William Wyler, who made, who made what Best Years of Life, made a documentary called Memphis Bell. He, there's a fantastic book by a writer named Mark Harris called Five Came Back, about five Hollywood directors who, who served in the military during the war making wartime films. And Wyler was one of them, and he was filming on Memphis Bell. He was filming at 31,000 feet, and, you know, the oxygen was, he was, he was climbing around in this plane, trying to get in the right position, and he went deaf. He went deaf from the lack of pressure on the plane, and he wasn't wearing proper headgear. Um, and, and he finally recovered his, his hearing, but this was a guy, he was a 40-year-old German-Jewish refugee who moved to the United States, and there he was, like, crawling around a B-52 bomber, and most amazing story in that book, actually, George Stevens, who directed um, uh, High Noon, actually, no, did he? No, he directed Shane and a couple of other things. A great director, but he was a I famous... I had no expression when he looked at He just looked at me... No, I'm trying to remember if he directed High Noon. I, and I, that's right, Fred Zinneman directed High Noon. Thank you. But anyway, George Stevens was known as a... Com- Thank you. Was known as a comedy director. He directed uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies. He directed a great comedy called The More the Merrier. Anyway, he went off, he went to Germany, and he wasn't getting anything done, and everybody else was making better documentaries, and then he was finally with a unit, and they drove into Germany, and he went to Auschwitz when they liberated Auschwitz, and he spent a week filming Auschwitz, filming at Auschwitz. This is the first night owl that ever Excuse me with Auschwitz stories. Excuse me, this is a great... Human American story. And he filmed. Do I get to drink? He, he filmed Auschwitz. at Auschwitz. Does that count? And what he filmed, the, the the film footage that he used, was used as the case for the prosecution in the trials at Nuremberg that put so many people to death because it was the documentary proof. And Stevens came back to Hollywood and never made another comedy because he had. I seen wonder too why. Much. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to do another Night Owl. Um. You know, we have this. Or great, I could do this. This is a great. Yeah, this, you know what? what? You should see Diggs Town. <laughs> see, yeah. I rest well, my here's what because I would it's do. a heist movie. As I, <laughs> this is how Larry King would do it: Auschwitz, liberation, <laughs> World War II, career ending. Jonah, your thoughts. <laughs> we got to wrap this thing up. There are tote bags up there. At least one of them has James Lilacs in it. So, so do the right this thing. This tote bag Stomp was made on them all. in 1922 <laughs> by the Tote Bag of America Company, which actually invented the tote bag in Bismarck, North Dakota. Thank you all very much. It was great. Thank you. Good night. Ricochet. Join the conversation.